Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. This episode is a continuation of our bonus season. Hey, here's some news. This past week, David delivered his final lectures after 14 years as a seminary professor at the McAfee School of Theology. The last class that he taught there was an intro to Christian ethics, but it wasn't the same curriculum that he's been using for 14 years. Brand new lectures, brand new materials, all of the the wisdom and the, the work over the years brought into this new lecture series, which will be published as a book and as a video series. And to promote some of that good material, what this season is, are clips of those lectures from the classroom. We're inviting you to take a seat and join us as a seminary student for the next 10, 12, 15 minutes. And that's what these episodes are going to be this season. Today, we're going to listen to David's intro to virtue ethics on the importance of character and virtue and strong moral foundations. It's really good content. We're really excited to share it with you. And we, uh, we hope you enjoy it. We hope this is enriching, that this is useful, that this is interesting, and uh, that it will get you excited about the new projects that we're working on. We always are interested in your feedback. Uh, you can find both of us, uh, David and myself, on social media and our respective websites. And uh, yeah, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. What do you care about? What are you interested in? What's working? What's not? Talk to us. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. It is interesting that the English word character comes directly from the Greek word character which was a term describing the imprint left by the marks stamped on official documents, character. Character is the distinctive imprint left by a unique human life. While people can surprise us even in middle age or later with tremendous moral growth or disaster, most often continuity of character is visible. This basic account of character formation should be immediately recognizable to anyone who has ever loved a romantic partner, raised a child, or taught a room full of teenagers. Its truth has been recognized by every community that cares about its own survival. Indeed, character and community are deeply intertwined. Character is formed in communities, most of which have very definite ideas regarding the traits they believe essential for community well-being. The technical term deriving from Greek philosophical ethics for the character qualities deemed desirable by communities is virtue. Virtue. Qualities of a person that make that person a good person in community and that contribute to the good of the community. Virtue. Communities constantly deploy strategies for shaping character in the directions they consider most important. People are considered virtuous if their character develops in the direction that their community considers beneficial. Parents, educators, and religious leaders are among the frontline workers who shape the character of the young. This is a bit scary when you think about it. It would be nice to believe that there is a more or less universal set of virtues that people everywhere recognize and affirm. 
people should be kind, merciful, and forgiving, we might say. Or people should be honest, diligent, and hardworking. Or people should be humble, other-centered, and sacrificial. Or fill in the blank. But even cursory attention to those three virtue triads that I just went through reveals that in substance they differ quite meaningfully. And these are all solid virtue lists. Focusing on mercy, on hard work, or on humility. When we then zoom out and consider some of the worst societies in human history, looking at the virtues that they embraced, we see some truly awful results. One of the best examples of such toxicity was in Nazi Germany, which lasted from 1933 to 1945. This totalitarian state quite intentionally sought to crush Christian virtues, like mercy and compassion, and replace them with new so-called virtues, like ruthlessness, race consciousness, ultranationalism, and loyalty to Adolf Hitler. Groups like the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler Youth, were established specifically to displace older character-forming entities like Christian youth groups, and to reshape a whole generation. While the Nazis themselves admitted with frustration that they were never entirely successful in uprooting the character formation traditions of the older German Christian culture, they made enough progress to create thousands of young race warriors ready to slash and burn their way across Europe during World War II. One of the very oldest accounts of virtue was that generated by the Greek philosopher Aristotle, his version of virtue ethics was refined in ancient Christianity and today is embraced by Christian ethicists of various traditions, though still being especially featured in Catholic ethics. The Aristotelian Thomistic virtue ethics tradition, Thomism, is named for the towering Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274. It is my hope someday to just be known by you know, Davidism, right? You know, if you've really arrived, they don't need your last name anymore. That's what happened with Thomas Aquinas, okay? Right, so the scholar known as Thomas, this ethics tradition refuses to concede that a virtue simply equals a desirable character trait as defined by this or that community. Instead, it believes that virtues are character traits that fit with human nature, especially the good for which humans are designed. The idea is that humans do have a design. Let's adopt the Christian version of this view and describe it as a divine design. On this view, virtues are character traits that conform with the good for which God designed all humans, while vices are character traits that hinder or fail to conform with the divine design. Consider this claim. God designed humans for loving relationships of various types. Hopefully you agree with that claim. Right? We flourish when we love and are loved. Virtuous character in this dimension would look like attitudes, dispositions, emotions, urgings of conscience, habits, and practices that tend toward the building and successful sustaining of loving relationships. Relevant virtues might include commitment, resilience, patience, forgiveness, and self-control. 
Can you recall ever demonstrating or failing to demonstrate such virtues when your most important relationships have been under the most stress? This account does not accept that such positive traits are virtues merely because they have been declared as such by specific communities. Quite the opposite. The claim is that these character traits have been valued by decent, functional, and wise communities because they have discovered how humans were designed and they have developed moral traditions that respond accordingly. <clears throat> An interesting paradox in virtue ethics is the role of the concept of happiness. The basic claim is that the good life is the virtuous life, and the virtuous life is the happiest possible life. We can look around and see that many of the happiest people that we know are those who exhibit the most mature virtues. To return to our earlier example, these are people who seem to have the most profound intimate relationships and the virtues that are required to sustain them. The good, the beautiful, the right, the natural, and the happy all seem to align for such people. Truly, such people are blessed and a blessing to others. So one can easily conclude that the virtuous is what makes for true happiness. If we add the theological con conviction that God is good, and good to us, and wants us to flourish by experiencing true happiness, then virtue ethics ends up having the joyful implication that morality is not about God imposing odious demands, but instead God nudging us toward our own highest happiness. This seems perfectly lovely, and yet we do see many cases in which a virtuous life is not in fact a happy life, or even a long one. Sometimes virtue can be costly and sacrificial. We also see that many seemingly, seemingly happy people do not give much evidence of being virtuous. This problem is already raised in Scripture, perhaps never more acutely than in the book of Job, the virtuous man who is definitely not happy and is having all, bad, all kind of bad things happen to him. And of course, it is evidenced in the early and unjust death of Jesus, the best person of all. The use of the term natural is often deployed in relation to virtue theory and in ethics generally. The term is so central to the tradition I am describing that it is sometimes called natural law ethics. The idea is that the world has a discernible rational or natural order and that human flourishing is achieved through conforming our actions to that order. But this all gets quite complicated when you push a bit deeper. <clears throat> to continue with our example. It certainly does seem natural for most humans to seek flourishing through a life with meaningful, intimate relationships, right? People do that. But what do we make of how this natural drive for relationships so easily goes wrong? For example, how it can become obsessive or abusive. Or how, how we can become too dependent on one person. Or how we can ask a person to become for us what only God should be for us. These tendencies recur so frequently in human life that they too can be called natural, right? They seem natural. This issue comes up everywhere in life, really. It is natural to enjoy food. But why does gluttony also come so naturally? It is natural to want sexual satisfaction. But why does sexual desire so often take such twisted forms? Like, for those who are 
only pleased by child pornography or something like that. Gay people naturally desire sexual bonding with a member of the same sex. This is their universal report. For gay people, this is what comes naturally. Yet the natural law tradition historically has claimed that homosexuality is intrinsically unnatural. And millions of gay and lesbian people have been pounded with this message over many centuries. When there is a dispute, as on this issue, who decides what is natural and what is unnatural? This is one reason why the status of the term natural is one of the most disputed concepts in all of Christian ethics. Even if human life exhibits many traces of divine design, it also seems to be messed up. And that seems quite natural to us as well, at least as life as we experience it. When we look at human life, it seems equally appropriate to see evidence of divine design, also confusion and disagreement about that divine design, and a rather obvious pattern of breakage, defacement, and damage to whatever divine design there might be. They're all there. I am persuaded that the human mind does not have unfettered access to the natural. What we see is cloudy and how we see is also cloudy. I share the view of the majority Christian tradition that the world exhibits both traces of a divine design and no place at all in which that design has not been damaged. This means that virtue cannot just be conformity of character with God's design but something more elusive conformity of character with what seems needed in a world made by God, damaged by sin, and now being redeemed in Jesus Christ.